Blog Talk Radio. August 26, 2016 edition of Don't Let It Go Unheard, and this is where we discuss news, politics, and culture from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy. Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism uniquely upholds the right to the pursuit of your own happiness. I'm your host, Amy Peikoff, and as you can tell if you're listening and you are a regular listener to my show, I've got a cold. This is not my normal voice. Uh, I guess some people have a voice that's kind of this deep and everything normally, but not this nasal, right? Not most people are going to have this as the uh, the quality of the voice. So bear with me today. I don't think I'm going to lose my voice at any point here. I might cough. I might sniff. It's going to be yucky. I'm so sorry about that, but I just got one of these viruses that's been going around and it's been hanging on a bit, so... Bear with me there. If you go over to the blog at don'tletitgo.com, you can check out the program notes for today's show. The title, I'm doing something again. I keep doing all this uh, stuff that's sort of self-indulgent, I guess. It's the you know what's been rattling around in my head during the week, and it's keeping your eye on the prize. And this can be applied as we're going to apply it in the realms of politics and culture and stuff like that, but also in your personal life, you can see that sometimes you can get distracted by the negatives and really what you should be focusing on are the goals. Now you have to focus on the negatives. Sometimes you need to focus on the negatives that are out there to the extent that you need to actually do something about them. And the, you know, sort of quintessential quotation from Ayn Rand is one that I went ahead and embedded in the program notes via the Ayn Rand bot, my little Twitter account that is doing pretty well, actually. I think 17,000 some odd followers out there. But here's the quotation. Never think of pain or danger or enemies a moment longer than is necessary to fight them. Yeah, never think of pain or danger or enemies a moment longer than is necessary to fight them. And as we go through life, it, it's necessary to remind yourself of something like this every so often. So I'm kind of circling back to this theme. The thing that was funny, though, is I went over to the Ayn Rand bot, you know, just today. And, and sometimes, and, you know, the Ayn Rand bot is randomly generated. It is completely randomly generated. I've got these databases, and then I uh, use a random number generator to reshuffle them each time I throw them out there. And so it just is a coincidence that today, 
like two hours, seven hours ago, whatever, the Ayn Rand bot has tweeted out, first of all, this one, I do not attach any importance to negatives. Evil is impotent. And then another one, a traitor does not squander his body as fodder or his soul as alms. And you could be, for example, you know, using up your energy, your emotional capacity and everything else on the negative and, and be doing this. And you could be doing this in a, in a variety of realms. So now that I've kind of told you the theme, you might in your own mind be, you know, thinking of ways in your own life recently that this has been applicable. It's interesting because a friend of mine on, uh, on Facebook, uh, a good friend of mine who's been ill recently said she loves my theme. It's something that she's been thinking about recently, like this week as well. And I love it. You know, I love if I've got something that's kind of rattling around in my mind and, you know, feel like I want to share it with you guys and also apply it on a political level and everything else. If that can be a value to other people and listeners, I like that as well. If you want to call in and talk about, you know, again, there's going to be some things that are out there in the culture, maybe uh, something has come up even in, in your life and stuff that's relevant to this particular theme. You can call in and do that. You know, check out all the program notes too. I've got a lot of different stories that we can talk about. The number to call in is 760-888-5817. Again, if you're listening live, 760-888-5817. If you're listening on 880 The Biz, where we're still doing some replays, you're not going to be able to call that number in live. This show's live on Friday afternoons. But um, those of you who are here on Blog Talk Radio, feel free to call in. Of course, you can participate in the chat room. I see a number of people over in the chat, including some people who aren't normally able to listen live. So welcome, Stephen. Glad to have you. Glad to see Stuart in there. Stuart, thanks for sending stories this week. I've got a couple of them over in the program notes. Stuart is sometimes here, sometimes uh, not able to listen live as well. Uh, Hi, Selfishness, Roger. Rob Abiera also sent me some great stories. Uh, uh, Trevor is there. Hi, Trevor. And sometimes he's live, sometimes not. Just Gene, uh, John Roberts, Herman. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Glad to see you guys hanging out. Uh, people are talking about uh, Stephen uh, Molyneux. Is that how you pronounce his last name? Molyneux. <sighs> um, yeah. Everybody can take a look at that stuff for themselves, but I'm, I am going to highlight these things that we do need to at least address briefly in the program notes. Um, there's some racist eugenics going on within the alt-right movement, and it is something to note. And I am glad that both Rob Abiera and uh, Stuart Hayashi sent me things on that theme this week. So as I said, go over to the blog, don'tletitgo.com. We will check out the program notes. There are a few items about an enemy, namely Hillary Clinton, that we need to talk about because there are some things out there that just, you know, if anything, you can spread the word to your friends who are thinking of electing this woman. I guess she is still the one who's up in the polls and looks like the one who's going to be our next president, but this is scary stuff. The first story that I've got right there under that tweet from the Ayn Rand bot 
It's a Washington Post story that I saw this morning. Yeah, it's been on Dredge as well, but I saw it first over at the Washington Post. It's a Washington Post, you know, not a right-wing publication that has this headline. It is this, Dr. Drew Show, canceled days after hosts negative speculation about Hillary Clinton's health. You know, a lot of people have been speculating about whether Hillary Clinton is unhealthy and whether she's too unfit to become president of the United States. And they're doing this because they see, you know, people see her fall very often, more often than you would think somebody of normal health would, plus other sorts of things. And Dr. Drew, himself a doctor, you would think that he's one of the ones who's most qualified to speculate about Clinton's health. Now we learn that his show, Drew Pinsky's six-year-old HLN show, Dr. Drew on Call, has been canceled by CNN, effective September 22nd. In a statement, the CNN executive vice president, Ken Jouts, said that he and Pinsky, quote, have mutually agreed to air the final episode of his show on September 22nd, but gave no specific reason for cancellation. CNN Money, in its reporting of the announcement, connected it to a broader shakeup at HLN, including the end of Nancy Grace's flamboyant show devoted to criminal court cases. But the decision came eight days after Pinsky's comments on a radio show airing August 27th, uh, excuse me, August 17th, 27th is tomorrow, August 17th, questioning the health and medical care of former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, Democratic nominee for president. After looking at bits and pieces of Clinton's health care records she made public in 2015, he said he was, quote, gravely concerned not just about her health, but her health care. Okay, not just her health, but her health care. Uh, his comments came as the campaign of Republican presidential nominee Donald Trump uh, have attempted to portray Clinton as lacking, quote, the mental and physical stamina demanded by the job. Um, and he, his views, Pinsky said, were also shared by another physician with whom he had consulted, which was aired on KABC's McIntyre in the morning. They say the episode has been removed from the station's website, but a transcript was published by the conservative Washington Free Beacon. That's another thing that's ominous, right? So, you know, you'd say, oh, well, this is just, uh, you know, you're just showing, uh, you know, kind of a, a sequence in time of two events, you're showing, you know, that he did this episode and that uh, it was critical of Hillary Clinton and potentially damaging to her candidacy because it's questioning her health. And then suddenly he's pulled off the air. But, you know, that's, that's just a coincidence. It's just timing. It's a sequencing of two. You can't show a causal connection. I would say that the removal of that particular episode is another piece that is some circumstantial evidence. Obviously, we don't have direct evidence, but it is circumstantial and it is strong enough that the Washington Post goes to press with this headline, which implies a causal connection. So this is scary. We do know that in the past, Hillary Clinton has uh, done things to shut down freedom of expression when that expression is critical of her. And this is something that we fear when and if she becomes president. Okay. Um, 
So we are we are definitely worried about this. Uh, now let's see here. The people are talking about polls and stuff here in the in the chat room. Uh, okay, now they're they're still talking about some of the alt right and the racists and stuff. Uh, but yeah, I I am concerned about this. I think this is very ominous. She's not even president yet, and we're seeing this sort of thing. Imagine a Hillary Clinton presidency and how much freedom of expression would be shut down. I mean, here I am. I'm continuing to be critical. I made sure to tag. Hillary Clinton, both in my blog talk radio, you know, the post of the show at blog talk radio and also at my blog at don't let it go.com. Make sure include her name in this show where I am being critical of her and questioning her, uh, you know, ability to be a president in a country where we have a first amendment. Why? Because she shuts down expression when that expression is critical of her and that is not acceptable in a free country <sighs> earlier this week we've got an ap story and again associated press not biased not some crazy right-wing media source headline of it is many donors to clinton foundation met with her at state it says more than half the people outside the government who met with Hillary Clinton while she was Secretary of State, gave money, either personally or through companies or groups, to the Clinton Foundation. This, sh- this story has been going around, at least through a lot of the Fox News stations and stuff. I saw Tammy Bruce was talking about it this week. A lot of people talking about it. But it, it's because it is actually an important story to discuss This is about purchasing access to a politician in power. It is something that Hillary Clinton obviously has practiced in the past. I've heard the rebuttal, you know, that, oh, not all these people who met with Hillary Clinton got what they asked for. And that is not proof that these people weren't being granted at least special access special consideration. You know, the people don't have to be granted every single thing that they ask for in order to benefit from special access that they have purchased due to donating to the Clinton Foundation. This is quite disturbing. And, you know, again, if people are serious about having a government of laws and not men and maintaining a free country based on a constitution and principles contained in a constitution, you do not want anything like a Hillary Clinton, nothing like it at all. I still have friends who are saying, well, she seems less dangerous than Trump. As time goes on, it's harder and harder to be sure of that. I'm not saying that you could in good good conscience vote for Trump, (laughs) but I am saying that I don't know that you could in good conscience vote for Hillary Clinton and think that somehow you are staving off a worse danger because I think with Trump, you've got the crapshoot and, you know, some things that could happen based on the crapshoot are really terrible, but certainly what will happen with Hillary Clinton is terrible. She is corrupt She has committed criminal acts, even though she won't be indicted for them. So it's just it's just a warning. And, you know, I'm not going to belabor it more than it needs to be, because, again, excuse me, sorry, with this cold. 
want to practice what I preach here this week, or I want to practice what Ayn Rand preaches, at least for a short period of time before I lapse into thinking of the pain and danger and enemies longer than I need to, but I don't want to. We do need to get this word out, though, to people. And those of you who are thinking of voting for Hillary Clinton on the idea that you're doing the anti-Trump vote and that somehow you're going to save the reputation of capitalism and all these things, I'm just asking you to keep this stuff in mind. Because she's just really, really bad. And, you know, the more stuff that comes out, the more you see that this is the case. Uh, People are still talking about Stephen Molina in the chat room there. (laughs) Rob, Rob is, uh, Rob Abier is focusing on the thing that I'm going to look at next. And I'm going to talk about my thinking behind posting this a little bit here. There's been photos of Hillary Clinton going around this week and people are making fun quite rightly of her outfits. Uh, She's got these hideous, hideous outfits that people are comparing to. I've seen comparisons to the upright vacuum cleaner bags, you know, sort of the kind of uh, burlappy or strangely fabricy textured bags that are on the outside of the actual vacuum cleaner bags, like on a Kirby on a Kirby upright or something. Uh, I've seen people compare this one outfit that I've posted a picture of at the blog at don'tletitgo.com. They've compared that to an oven mitt. Um, Normally, I'm not the kind of person to poke fun of kind of personal characteristics of a politician or anyone else. But, you know, first of all, this, this is an outfit, right? It's clothing. She has more of a choice about this. So, for example, if I was poking fun of her weight, we don't know exactly what is behind her weight. Now, I can guess that the reason she's choosing these bizarrely, you know, structured outfits is because of her health and weight and everything else, which may be something that she's not able to control. Although I always wonder, uh, you know, again, we don't know, we don't know what's going on with, with her health. You know, she says she does yoga all the time, but she is not wearing clothes of someone who is a yoga aficionado. By the way, I didn't post it here on the, on the blog, but I could have, there is a woman who is a yoga aficionado, and I think Daily Mail UK posted this picture of her, and a Russian scientist who dove in the nude because supposedly the beluga whales are going to be scared off if you're wearing anything, I guess even a bikini, it would be scandalous. So she's, you know, she dives in the nude in this freezing cold water for 10 minutes. She holds her breath. I have no idea if that's even possible, um, how it would be, you know, possible not just to hold your breath for that long, but to do things and focus on stuff while you're holding your breath for 10 minutes. But nonetheless, here's this woman, a, uh, you know, established practitioner of yoga. Yeah, she's only 36. Okay, fine. Hillary's a lot older, but still, I just submit that if you do a ton of yoga, that you're going to be somewhat more healthy than Hillary Clinton appears to be. You're going to be less likely to be falling down those stairs. I would assume Uh, unless there's a serious health condition such that she's doing yoga and it's actually improved her, but then we should be very worried about whether she should be president. Right? So there's all of these things we can talk about. Uh, But let me get back to why I feel okay making fun of her because I did, I posted this kind of mean comment. Uh, My caption for this photo is don't let friends or enemies. She's an enemy of mine. uh, Don't let them drink and dress. 
right? Don't let them drink and dress. Not even enemies. Don't let them do that. You don't want to be wearing this stuff. I assume she's wearing something like this maybe because physically she thinks she's got no choice. I don't know. Uh, a lot of people are saying that it is repre- you know, kind of resembling Maoist communist garb. So maybe she's been pouring through books and deciding that that's attractive. There's been some sort of assimilation in her mind of, of what she thinks fashion is. But this is hideous stuff. And in, in a way, I feel like I want to make fun of it. Why? Because she is the kind of person who might be shutting down criticism like Dr. Drew. So, you know, you can go back to uh, that great cartoon of Bosch Faustin where he says, you know, Muhammad says, you can't draw me and that's why I draw you. Hillary Clinton has put out there in a number of contexts that she does not appreciate being made fun of and that in fact she is willing to use her political power against people who either ridicule or criticize her. So I figure, okay, it actually becomes important to ridicule Hillary Clinton because she is seeming to be the person who is using political power and will continue to use political power to shut down freedom of expression when that expression ridicules or criticizes her. So that's my little bit of explanation there. You know, again, I'm not really the kind of person who does personal ridicule of these figures, but in her case, I will be glad to make an exception. Let me get over back to the chat room. And I also want to check out the switchboard and see if I got anybody who's called in today. Uh, I've got a call. If you do want to talk when you call in, you have to press one and that will put up a little question icon and let me know that you do actually want to talk and not just listen. A lot of people call in just to listen as well. Uh, Trevor says that I guess she's not going to invite me to the White House now. So what is it that you did, Trevor? Yeah, she's not going to invite me for sure. Yeah, John agrees. All the more reason to ridicule and criticize her. If anyone deserves personal ridicule, it's her. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, uh, people in the chat room are having the debate about uh, Stephen Molyneux. Uh, all I'm going to say, and you know, maybe we can just go ahead and skip because people are kind of consumed over in the chat room with this topic, and then after we talk about it a little bit, I'm hoping you guys will get on to some of the other stuff because I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this. The concern is that one of the essential characteristics of the alt-right, which would include, unfortunately, the guy who I have previously called my gay boyfriend, Milo Yiannopoulos, right? Um, Apparently he has put out something that's being taken as sort of a manifesto of the alt-right that includes some kind of racist remarks. And then there's this YouTube montage of Stefan Malnia. I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly, but you know, he doesn't announce it on these clips himself. I'm, I was watching some of this stuff I've watched. I'm thinking about six minutes into it and he is definitely making links between people of certain ethnicities and certain mental capacities. And, you know, in some of the times that he's talking about it, he's saying, well, 
maybe it's just in the culture and it's so embedded in the culture that it's like a genetic thing. But then in other contexts, he says, this is just part of certain ethnicities that they are not capable of performing successfully in a capitalist society. And, you know, if you start thinking about things like, you know, keeping your eye on the prize, right? What is the prize of people who listen to this show? I think the prize of people who listen on this show is to have a society in which people are able to govern their lives according to reason, right? We need to be able to govern our lives according to our own rational faculties, our own best judgment of what is best for us in our lives. And this discussion of Manya, yeah, he tries to tap dance around it sometimes. He is clearly saying that some people just don't have the free will to, quote, succeed in a capitalist society. And I guess that as a consequence that they are going to make choices, they have no you know, free will about this, they're going to end up deciding to do things that pose harm to us, right? There's all these different assumptions along the way. And so that therefore we are somehow justified in keeping whole races of people out of our country because, you know, they're just not up to snuff. It's a denial of free will. It's making tremendous assumptions about the ability to lift oneself up in a culture. Um, it is a, an assumption about connections between race and intelligence that I don't see is warranted. Um, people need to knock it off. And if you think that by allying yourself with racists and people who want to do this ethnic cleansing garbage and people who want a government to initiate force to keep races of people out and that somehow you're going to have a society of, of people who govern themselves by reason by having the government initiate force against whole races of people you're not going to so I say keep your eye on the prize the foundation of this is reason reason is based on free will human beings by their nature have free will there's not these different species of human beings, some with free will and some with not, they have free will. Any human being with free will is capable of increasing or decreasing his or her intelligence, right? I find if I go through certain periods of my life and I let myself mentally stagnate, my intelligence has gone down. You know, today there's an article that I want to get with you guys Actually, I'm just giving you the first indication of looking at this article. Why? Because it's written by this really smart legal academic who, if I am not on top of my game, I have a hard time following his damn argument, right? Free will can increase and decrease the intelligence. And this idea that you're going to condemn whole races of people, I'm sorry, screw you. Um, I'm mad today. I'm sorry. I just, I'm, just, I'm just in a mood. Um, maybe because I'm battling this virus or not, but I just, I have no patience for that. And, and again, keep your eye on the prize people. Uh, you know, as much as I think um, Milo Yiannopoulos, Yiannopoulos is brave, you know, to go and uh, be in these Sharia governed neighborhoods in Europe and do a demonstration and everything else. If you're going to couple that with a, a true racist kind of ethnic cleansing ideology and stuff, 
I'm, I'm done. I'm just, I'm just done. So we have to be very careful. Now, People are going to go, oh, well, Amy, you're that open immigration person. There's these people who are slamming me as being part of open immigration. Actually, I think they stopped doing that because at least I, I challenged on Twitter. Um, some people think that I'm supposed to defend open immigration, which they think that Jerome Brook adheres to, which he doesn't adhere to fully open immigration either. What I have said in the past is you can keep people out based on adherence to Islam combined with certain actions that they've taken that show that they support the elements within Islam that pose a danger to us. This can be done via background check. Any rational leader who wants to protect our rights is going to perform the proper type of background check and figure out what, you know, elements within Islam, what elements within the Muslim population actually need to be kept out because there are some. Uh, but this idea that you're just going to exclude anybody who uh, calls themselves Muslim when they actually themselves don't adhere to or haven't done anything to support the elements of that ideology that pose a danger to us, I, I can't be in favor of that. And it turns out that Trump, which is everybody's you know poster boy for this, he doesn't really probably adhere to it. He's going to betray everybody who thinks that that's what they're going to be getting. They're, they think they're going to get a, a full ban on all Muslim immigration. Come on. You're not going to get it today anyway. You know, and, and I also love, sorry, I'm just ranting today. I don't know why I'm in this mood. Um, there are people who, you know, when they see some atrocity committed by a Muslim, and there are plenty of these you know, atrocities committed by Muslims in Europe. Why? Because the, you know, people in Europe have not conducted the proper background checks. You know, again, we could talk about refugee populations, right? Right now, our government is actively assisting refugee populations to come here. In a proper society, no government would actively, uh, you know, assist. They would not devote special resources and stuff. Uh, if you wanted to come here, you responsible for paying the cost of your background checks and all that kind of stuff in a proper society. So things would be very different in the type of society that I'm imagining, even though I am not, you know, myself um, supporting an across-the-board ban on Muslim immigration. Okay, so that being said, that was a little bit of a tangent. Uh, the other thing that I, I really object to is when I see people, uh, when they see news of a Muslim atrocity, there are a few of the, these people out there who will uh, say, thanks, Jerome Brook. Like, because Jerome Brook, you know, arguably has supported more of an open immigration policy than other people, that somehow he's responsible for this atrocity that happened across the world. We, as objectivists right now, unfortunately, we don't have a big enough of a voice to have an effect on this immigration policy. And, you know, you think, oh, somehow, you know, we're condoning policies to do this. No, we're not. You know, again, in Europe, you've got governments actually subsidizing the bringing in of these refugees. And here in the United States, we even have our government subsidizing the bringing in of these refugees. That needs to stop. And then moreover, we need to institute effective background checks. And yeah, in certain situations, certain countries and stuff where you say, and I've had conversations with callers who have said it is impossible to conduct an effective background check with respect to certain countries or certain, you know, populations, if it is impossible, 
then yeah, maybe you do need to keep them all out for a certain period of time. And the innocents who are kept out in such a situation, it's collateral damage. But it is not just based on stated adherence to an ideology. It is based on objective knowledge that either those people or people within a group that you can't distinguish readily, that they pose a risk based on their actions, based on their actions, not just on the ideas that they hold. So, you know, if you want to keep people out based on their race, if you want to keep people out based on just the stated ideas that they hold, when those are not directly involving actions or even, you know, somewhat indirectly involving actions taken in an attempt to destroy our country, our society, our way of life, then the government doesn't have any business keeping these people out. It doesn't have any business helping them come in either, right? I don't want my government recruiting a whole bunch of Muslims into my country and paying for it and using my tax dollars. No, but you're not entitled to use force to keep out people who haven't shown through their actions um, anything other than peaceful. I've got Stuart here in the queue, so I'm going to go let him interrupt my rant here for a bit. Hi, Stuart. Welcome uh, oh, to the show. Aloha. Yeah, I want to thank Hello, you Stuart? for talking about this. Uh, it's pronounced I'm not Stephon able to hear you, and I don't know why. Hello? Can you hear me now? I'm not able to hear you, Stuart. Can you, can you hear I'm me now? I'm not exactly sure what's going on. Oh, I think I'm still connected. Now? I'm still connected. And I don't can know why I'm not hearing you. I've heard everything else. No? Okay, I'm going to have to disconnect you. I don't know exactly what's going on, Stuart. If your microphone is working correctly or not. You were able to hear him. You guys were able to hear Stuart, and I'm not able to hear Stuart. Something is going wrong. Let me see here. And you're able to hear me. Yes. Uh, Aloha. Can you hear me this time? Okay. You guys are able to hear Stuart, and I'm not able to hear Stuart. Is that really the case? You guys can hear Stuart. And I can't hear him. Well, that's not going to work very well for a conversation now, is it? You can hear me and you can hear Stuart, but Stuart and I cannot hear, well, he can probably hear me, but I can't hear him and I have no idea why. This is ridiculous. Um, I think, yeah, if I, I think if I disconnect and reconnect, I might have a chance myself of being able to hear him. Let me... No, you know, I I heard the music. I heard everything. I should be hearing Stuart. So I don't see why I wouldn't. Um, Stuart, I'm going to hang up on you again, hopefully. And let me try again. And then if that doesn't work, I'm going to disconnect myself and try to connect again and see if that helps. But I've got everything turned on over here. I think I should be able to do that. So I'm going to hang up on Stuart. Stuart, you can go ahead and call back in. That would be great. It is very odd. <laughs> Tim says, I hear Julian Assange. Uh, is Julian Assange going to save us? That's one of the things we're going to talk about in a few minutes. Is Julian Assange going to save us from Hillary Clinton? And if she saves us from Hillary Clinton, what are we going to have in instead of it? I don't know. Okay, let's hopefully, hopefully Stuart's calling back in. 
And I hope when Stuart does call back in, I'm going to be able to hear him. You know what I can do? I can give myself a test. I'm going to play a little bit of music that's here in the studio and see if I can hear it. Let's try that first. Try to isolate the cause. Let me see here. No? You guys hearing music? No? This is the test. Are you hearing music? You hear the NSA? You're hearing music. Okay, you guys are hearing music. I am hearing music. And I don't know why that is. So you're hearing me, and you're hearing the music, but I'm not hearing music. So I am. I'm going to have to disconnect myself. I just turned off the music. Actually, I should play you. I want to play you a little bit of music. Let me just play you a little bit of music. And then I will disconnect myself and reconnect myself, and hopefully it'll work. Awesome song that introduced me to the Jezebels via Sylvia Turkman, world famous dog trainer and agility competitor. I'm going to grab Stuart now, now that I'm going to be able to hear him. Hi, Stuart. Aloha. Aloha. Yeah. So there was a computer oh, setting. <laughs> yeah, there was there was a computer setting, and and I had set it perfectly when I first set up the show. And then somehow it reset itself so that I couldn't hear the output volume. So I'm glad that we get to talk. So, um, so thanks, Stuart, for sending this stuff. Was my rant harsh enough? Yes. Um, yeah, I want to thank you because a lot of people mistake the alt-right for, well, us. They hear us criticizing Islam. They hear the alt-right you know, saying Muslims are bad guys, and they think that's the same. But they mean some, when alt-right says Muslims are bad guys, it means something very different. They mean it's their tribe versus our tribe. We're inherently good because we're our tribe. They're the bad guys because they're the other tribe. And they don't really get into ideas. Right, right. And, you know, again, it's not just ideas because I've had this debate um, with a friend of mine on, on Facebook and actually posted a whole blog post about it, uh, Ed Maslish on the immigration issue and, and the idea of keeping somebody out just based on ideology per se, without any concrete actions 
taken in furtherance of the ideology that is actually out to destroy us, that, you know, counsels the initiation of force in the name of Islam. That's what we need to be focused on. Uh, that's the thing that that's the thing that gets people tempted to use all these special terms like Islamic totalitarianism, which I disagree with using that term. And I, I find it unfortunate that there's another book coming out with that term in the title. Um, you know, it's it, this is an element within Islam. And, you know, the idea that you're not going to ban all Muslims is a, a different point. Right. Um, it, it's what can a government objectively do? Because, again, the government is, you know, it's got this legalized monopoly on the use of physical force and it needs to use it only in, you know, serving the protection of individual rights. And you protect individual rights only when you are protecting uh, against initiation of force or retaliating, right? If there's if there's an imminent threat, then you are justified, right, in doing something about it. And this is where someone like Gary Johnson falls down, right? Because he'll say only only in retaliation after they've nuked you. Uh, but uh, I, I don't go that far, obviously. But at the same time, you need concrete evidence that these people pose a danger or that they belong to some group that is not in any reasonable way, you know, separable, right? So you can't do an effective background check as between these 20,000 people, which ones are the ISIS members or something. You'd say, well, I'm sorry, I would love to let you into my country, but right now we're at war and I'm afraid to say that your ability to move freely into our country is collateral damage. You know, you see what I mean? So we have to be so careful. Stephen Molyneux says that he's saying all these things to defend the West against the initiation of the use of force. People mistake him for an objectivist, and that's really what worries me. And um, what really worried me is that I see lots of very respectable scholars, psychologists, political commentators going on his show, you know, making it seem legitimate, making it seem respectable. I wondered why. And... I think I know the reason now. I saw his interview with one conservative, you know, Duke Pesta, who's sort of a, a Catholic conservative. And and um, I think that Seven Molyneux says to these people, can you come to my show and talk about culture? And in his interview with Duke Pesta, he said, the reason why I think successful and blacks are not is because of differences in culture. And Duke Pesta seemed to accept that. And, you know, and I think Dupesta uses the word culture the way the rest of us do, which is customs that are taught to us, but which we can change. We can choose to change these things. So even if, say, a group of people have a culture that you know doesn't help them succeed academically, they can choose to behave differently. Exactly, but, exactly. And and but uh, Molyneux wants to condemn everybody based on statistics. And, yeah, and that's the way. And that's it's the, ridiculous. I think he was doing a double message because. When Seven Molyneux said culture is the reason, I think he expected Duke Pesta to interpret the word the normal way, while at the same time he was saying another message to his audience, the longtime listeners, because most of his audience are um, teenagers and 20-year-olds who are very devoted to him and listen to his show every day. I mean, I know, wow. you know we have to be careful with the word cult because we know how people always say objectivists are a cult. But you can't right. uh, get testimony from people former associates of Seven Molyneux saying they really are a cult because 
back in 2007, before he started all this eugenicist stuff, he was an anarchist, and he was preaching Murray Rothbard's anarchism, but he would go farther and say, if your parents, you say teenagers, if your parents do not agree that anarchy is correct, they do not truly love you, you should disown them. Wow. Calls it defooling. means get rid of your family of origin, F-O-O, defoo. Get rid of your family of origin and pledge your life to me and my Ew. ideology. And oh, my God. And one, one of the first vloggers I ever watched on YouTube who talked about objectivism, you know, joined him, and she disappeared for many years, and, you know, because she was in his cult. And two years ago, she reemerged and said, yes, it is a cult. Now, Her- Her- Herman the German in the chat room says he's changed a lot since those days, though. But I'm sorry, if if that's anywhere in somebody's past, I'm going to stay so far away. You know, there's certain things that when somebody does them, at the very least, you're just going to keep a certain distance from that person forever, you know? Well, well you know, that's, what, that's what's so funny is that what happened was um, <clears throat> someone only keeps saying intellectual property rights should be abolished. And um, what happened was this critic who calls herself True Shives cut together all of these videos, not, not the new one, but these older videos of him, you know, saying she disowned your family and things like that and, and embarrassing him with his own words. And mm-hmm. so he got mad, and he, he filed a copyright infringement claim against her on YouTube. And that has legal standing. You know, it's backed by the law. So all of his anarchist fans said, what's going on? You say copyright should not be enforced. You're using the state-enforced copyright mechanism to silence a critic. So what happened was all these yeah, and it's and it's not clear that that would succeed anyway because there is a certain amount of freedom that you have to excerpt little bits for commentary purposes. So all his anarchist friends left him. They shamed him publicly, like the Free State Project people. They shamed him publicly, and for and donations dwindled. And so I think he was looking for a new audience, and then he latched onto um. MRA, the men's rights movement, they started talking about how women always mistreat men. And I think they're legitimate criticisms of feminism, but you know, I think you, you really did say a lot of misogynist things, that women are con- congenitally abusive, things like that. And then he went, he courted the alt-right, and that's how I think he got into this uh, eugenicist uh, rhetoric. To cultivate yeah, so I mean, basically, basically you're telling me, Stuart, that I could be rich if I just latched on to some sort of fear or hatred or something in the population. And I don't even have to do it in a philosophically correct way. You know, I just have to appeal to, to whatever it is. And, and then suddenly I would have the most lucrative podcast ever. Is that it? Well, rich in the Peter King sort of way, but or even in elsewhere. Yeah, Peter King sort of way, but not in a card work sort of way. <laughs> no, not at all. Yes. And uh, so, obviously, you know, I'm being so, facetious. And I, I've seen friends of mine, you know, who are in the intellectual think tank circuit go on the show, you know. And I, so I, I think that, you know, when we see this happen, you know, we should ask our friends, you know, are you familiar with all these other things Stephen Molyneux has been saying? And it's not the case of someone, you know, being very professional on the job in public and then going home, home and saying racist things in private. I mean, this is his podcast that he does on a regular basis. He brags that he's had over 100 million views on YouTube, and he has a whole cult of loyal followers in their teens and in their 20s. Right. So, you know, I, I think we have to be careful about reinforcing this, not reinforcing this pathology. 
No, and, and, and I definitely agree. And so I'm glad that you sent me that sort of montage of videos. It's about 25 minutes long, if I recall correctly. I highly recommend if people want to check this out and just get an idea of, you know, for yourself of what he says. And I do find that while sometimes he's trying to dance around it a little bit and say, okay, you know, culture is, identical for intents and purposes in certain contexts uh, to genetics. That is a false statement, first of all, because it's culture and you're still a human being with free will. And you know, again, even, even if, even if people have lower IQ, it doesn't mean that they are going to choose to initiate force against you and that therefore they automatically pose a danger. He's got so many steps in his reasoning where he thinks he's justified in keeping whole populations out. It is, it's revulsifying really. You know, I got especially worried when I heard some people say, well, you know, Stefan Molyneux is very revered among objectivists in my country. And I thought, no, it makes me think of Bizarro Superman, where in many ways Bizarro Superman is the exact opposite of Superman. But if Bizarro Superman robs a bank, people will think that Superman did it. So I, I'm worried about people associating Stefan Molyneux with objectivism, confusing him with objectivism. No, he's, that's the Bizarro objectivism. I maybe maybe yeah because it, basically it's the anti-reason right because again you know I'm saying keep the eye on the prize what's the prize the prize is a society in which people can conduct their lives according to reason and you know the, the other aspects that I want to talk about a bit later is that we are going to live long healthy healthy excuse me long healthy I can say healthy while I'm sick right long healthy productive lives surrounded by people that we care about spending time with people that we care. About. This is what we want. Right. And got to keep our, our eyes on this, but you know, in the, in the political context, we want to do what we can to further a society based on reason, reason as the basis of human production and interaction and everything else. And that's not what this guy's about. No. Well, well, may, may I quickly say something about um, people trying to blame terrorist attacks on Yaron Brook? Sure. Um, I, I noticed that the, I think it's because he defended Mexican migrant workers, and people will like to say the straw man. They say, well, then you don't want any national borders. And I think that's a complete straw man because you can be for peaceful migrants coming in and, and want borders for two reasons. First, it establishes jurisdiction. We're not at war against Canada. But it's better that Canada handles uh, police enforcing their law on their side, and we right. enforce the law on our side, you know, with yep. the division of labor. And Thanks secondly, national borders, national borders keep out military threats. Like, I'm totally fine with South Korea having a militarized border preventing North Korean troops from marching across the border. Oh, so, yeah. you know, so if, pe if people pose military threats, in that case, I think it is justified, you know, in defense of rights to keep out military threats, especially if war is declared. But, you know, if people just want to come to a country to, um, you know, work for low pay, that's not a military threat. And well, and, and, and still the border, the border would be the place to either have the background check performed or establish, you know, show proof that it had been performed and all that kind of stuff too. So uh, borders, they have a purpose. There are legitimate reasons for governments to keep people out of a certain geographic area, definitely legitimate reasons. But 
you know, just membership in a certain race or, you know, without further, you know, chains in the argument, you, you know, the idea that they come from a particular country, right? We need to know more about why coming from a particular country would be a reason to exclude, right? That's right. So, you know, the way I see it, you know, and, and sometimes people say, well, well, well we come up, they come for welfare, and I don't approve of that. I don't want people coming to a country just to go on welfare. But even then, you know, that's not the same as a military threat. If welfare is a problem, we should, as uh, on Twitter said, build a wall around the welfare and not around the country. I yes. think that's a more practical solution. Yes. Yes, and, you know, again, people will – make certain arguments based on an assumption about the context where it's that whole context that needs to be questioned. And in, in a way, until we can fix a whole lot of other things, there's not even a point in, in discussing some of this stuff, you know, um, tax, tax policy is a, another thing, you know, right now for the foreseeable future, we're going to have involuntary taxation in this country. And, you know, it, Obviously, if if we change that, then other things could change as well. But yeah, um, yeah. So this is this is why we we, we got to realize this is, a, this is a longer term battle. But you certainly don't want to ally yourself with someone who questions the whole foundation of reason, namely free will. And yeah. that's what Molyneux and his ilk seem to be doing. And, and I get is, is is Milo is Milo as bad as as they're saying as well? Is he just as bad as they are? Well, no, but no. I mean, he does. I, he, I haven't heard him spout eugenics. I haven't heard him doing any of that. But I think he does something dishonest where everything he says is tongue in cheek. So you don't know. Mm. So anytime you call him on something he says, he, he'll, he'll say, "Well, don't you have a sense of humor?" Uh. So I, I think that's sort of cowardly. If people want to say these things, they should just come out and say them. Okay, I, I hereby I break up that. with Milo. Milo is no longer my gay boyfriend. Okay. <laughs> um, but, thanks for but, calling, Stuart. Anything else before no I let problem. you go? I'm going to go on with some other stuff. No? Yeah. Well, well, it's not so serious, but, yeah, I thought it was interesting how Elon Musk wanted to meet that actress, Amber Heard, because she yeah, heard she liked I've, I've, got, I've got that in the program notes, so we're going to save that as a, as a treat for the end because I'm going to get into a couple more uh topics before we get to to the fun stuff at the end but yeah thanks for sending that as well and i agree poorly edited poorly edited but we'll we'll talk about that in a few thanks a lot Stuart, for calling in okay so i'm back over at the blog at don'tletitgo.com to look at our program notes and see how much progress we're making see how we're doing for time here we've got a little bit over a half hour left so i think i think we're going to be okay i was going to talk to you a little bit about privacy and as I was saying earlier in this discussion of intelligence, whenever I read this man, I feel like I got to have five cups of coffee and focus and everything else. His name is Oren Kerr. And I've had a little bit of an email exchange with him. I was privileged to do that. I don't always agree with him, but he is super smart and he definitely is great at laying out the issues in the area of privacy law. In this piece, he is giving an indication of where the debate on privacy is going. And it's, as far as I can tell from a first read, this was only published this morning, and it is a, a dense abstract point that I'm having a little bit 
tough time exactly digesting the two ways that the courts are going, but I think I got what he's saying here. There is a, quote, content versus metadata line in surveillance law. And you've heard this before, right, where the government thinks that it has a right to all of your metadata through the third-party doctrine, but maybe it needs a warrant or something else in order to get the content of your email. But there are certain contexts in which it is difficult to draw a line between content and metadata. So, for example, with a normal phone call, right, if I make a phone call, the time that I make the phone call, the length of the phone call in terms of time, the actual number that I dial, my phone number, all those things are arguably metadata. Some people also think that it is metadata uh, you know, the location of my cell phone while I'm making this call, maybe the location of my travels if I'm driving while I'm making this call, if I'm trying to multitask and, you know, kind of make my commute more bearable by catching up with a friend or something like that, right? Anyway, all of that could be metadata, arguably. And then, you know, the content, the actual audio, what's being said during the call, all the juicy gossip or whatever. I don't gossip. Um, all of that stuff is the content, right? So content versus metadata. But suppose, right? Suppose you're making a phone call and, you know, I don't, I don't know how much people are even doing this anymore, but they used to be like these calling cards. So it'd be a little card and you purchase a certain amount of airtime, you might call it on this calling card. And in order to use it, you need to first dial one number and then maybe you punch in your little code for your calling card and then you punch in the number that you actually want to talk to, right? So the initial number that you call is not only, you know, the, the whole thing that you need to know in terms of who that person is calling. There's also something that looks like content, which is the numbers that you dialed after you were connected to the initial number, uh, there's an analogy that Kerr makes in here, or maybe it was one of the articles that he's quoting, where you could say, okay, with an email, you know, part of what you send in the email might be directions to forward something to somebody else, and that the forwarding to somebody else and stuff, that that kind of stuff ends up itself just being metadata, even though it's in the content of an email. Uh, let me give you another example that might end up ringing a few more bells and, and get you thinking about it. Uh, if I go to WashingtonPost.com, just the overall big URL, maybe you might say that that is metadata, but that the content would be the specific sub address within that URL that I'm visiting. And it could get even more like content. For example, if I assume that Washington Post, yeah, Washington Post still allows comments. Some websites don't. But suppose there's a specific URL that if you could see that, it would show that I'm actually leaving a comment, right? That looks more like content. So you can see how not every address that you visit is merely metadata, some of the addresses that you visit look more like content because it might show the specific article that you read, the thing that you clicked on, that you actually made a, content, a comment at a certain time. All this stuff right, could be pieced together to give a, a more of a picture of the content of the communication versus 
just the mere what they call metadata. So this is the distinction that they're trying to draw. And then the question is, do they say, okay, well, now should we give the government access to everything on the grounds that some of what used to look like content is now metadata? And then the government is able to sort out the metadata from the other and, oh, you can trust the government, the government's going to look only at the metadata. Is that the way we want to treat this? Or do we want to treat it, they only get the real meta metadata. And in order to get any more of it, some of which they're trying to argue is metadata, they have to get a warrant. That, as I understand, is the debate that's looming out there. And the argument that says, you know, let's give the government the access to everything and then let the government trust the government to sort it out. That apparently is gaining some ground. Um, Oren Kerr calls this dichotomy the relative versus absolute approaches to the content metadata line. And I think he's in favor of a relative approach. So he would say, well, maybe in certain contexts, you would say that None of that stuff is metadata. It's all content. And then in other contexts, you would say uh, none of that can be like omitted on the grounds that it's simply content. You need to let the government like sort it through. It's all up for grabs, something like that. Right. So that he's, you know, Oren Kerr, he's a very kind of more pragmatic uh, thinker on, on privacy than I am. He would say, you know, in, in some contexts, maybe we're going to let government have warrantless access to all this stuff. Maybe. That's how I read the debate going. And of course, I find it scary, right? Because if you are familiar with my work, what I have said in the past, and I have a, an article aptly titled along these lines, it was published in 2013, called Don't Tread on My Metadata. Don't Tread on My Metadata. And um, let me see if I've got the, the link to it here. Yeah, I do have the link over here at the program notes. So go to the blog, don'tletitgo.com, and you can see the link to the article, Don't Tread on My Metadata. What I do in there is I try to give a more accessible version of my more scholarly article where I argue that the whole third-party doctrine that says that the government can get access to metadata without a warrant, that that is invalid. We need to eliminate the third-party doctrine and we can do that. We can still have, for instance, government secret agents and all the kind of things that law enforcement needs to have and should have in order to do their job. We can still have all those things without having the third-party doctrine. So check that out. Um, I would then, of course, get rid of this whole content metadata line. Why? Because I would require a warrant based on probable cause and particularized suspicion for all of it. Uh, that, you know, isn't that a great way to just get rid of a very sticky scholarly distinction that's out there, just say, no, you know, a pox on all your houses. I've got my own solution that just makes this all very black and white. People don't like that solution all the time, but I still think it's right. So you can check that out. Motive Power on Twitter shared something that was privacy related. And I also included it here in the program notes because Apple is a favorite of mine excuse me, not just because of their approach on privacy. So I've got all this cold and yucky noises I'm making. Um, you know, not just because of their approach on privacy, which is great. The, the piece here is that Apple is sticking to their privacy guns, that even 
when they are really trying to, you know, kind of break some ground in the artificial intelligence sphere, Apple is willing to stick to its guns on its privacy policy, even if that means that they will lose out, they will miss out on some of the top artificial intelligence talent. They are willing to forego being able to recruit some of these people if those people think that the Apple's privacy policy is a hindrance to that. And what do I mean by that? Apple's privacy policy is to, as much as possible, in, in essence, use technology to give us a solution to the problem posed by the third-party doctrine. You know, again, the third-party doctrine says, if I share information with Apple, if I share information with Apple, then I have given up a reasonable expectation of privacy in that data. Why? Because I've shared it, right? Now, what does it mean to give up a reasonable expectation of privacy? Well, today, if you are deemed to have given up a reasonable expectation of privacy in the data because you shared it with somebody, then that means the government can obtain it without a warrant. Sometimes there's a statute that says, well, the government doesn't have to have a warrant, but maybe it has to ask a judge nicely and say, pretty please. And that might be, you know, getting a court order based on some lower level of suspicion or whatever. Okay. But still, it is not a warrant based on probable cause and particularized suspicion, which is really what we want before the government can get hands on data. So that third party, third party doctrine exists. Companies like Apple know it. And so what they do in response is beautiful. What they do in response is they say, look, we are going to encrypt things in such a manner. Even we cannot access your data. You are not sharing data with us because we have designed technology. We have put in your hands technology that will allow you to experience all the wonderful features of Apple without sharing information with Apple. How beautiful is that? That's what they do. So in this little excerpt from the article that Motive Power shared, and I've got the, I've, I went ahead and just embedded the entire tweet. Uh, so thanks Motive Power for, for giving that to me. Uh, I embedded the entire tweet at the program notes so that you could see the applicable excerpt because the the article is a big long article about apple going into artificial intelligence but the you know the money piece here for me is that they are willing to forego this ai talent in order to maintain this privacy policy it says the company encrypts user information so that no one not even apple's lawyers can read it nor can the fbi and they say even with a warrant and then the question is do you think that that is good. Um, by the way, the FBI can read it with a warrant in so far as the FBI can approach you personally when you've got your Apple device and say, hey, here's a warrant. <laughs> Open up your Apple device so I can see X, Y, Z. According to this warrant, we're entitled. Remember the old fashioned way, like where the police came to your house with a warrant and they had you open the house and they come in and search your house. They need to do this to you with your devices, too. Right. And even more so, the Supreme Court has recognized that the information contained on our devices, these phones, these computers we carry around in our pocket, gives a bigger picture of who you are, more personal information about you than your house. Right. And if that's the case, 
shouldn't the FBI have to come to you personally with a warrant? You know, and then we can have a whole debate. And this is a debate I haven't had yet, and I keep talking about someday this is a debate we need to have. Is the information that's on your phone testimonial versus evidentiary? There's this distinction in the law that if it's actual testimonial information, that maybe you shouldn't be required to hand it over. That's a whole other debate for another day. But, you know, it is – I do not think it should be illegal for Apple to provide us with technology such that even with a warrant, FBI isn't going to be able to get that information from Apple. They can only come and get it from you. And maybe it dies with you if you, you know, your password's gone and, and your device is inaccessible. Oh, well, you know, that's good. There's some things that are just private and we should be able to have that. Now, uh, also Apple boasts about not collecting user information for advertising purposes, and, and that's wonderful, wonderful as well. And they say, well, while admirable from a user perspective, Apple's rigor on this issue has not been helpful in luring top AI talent to the company. And, you know, I would say this is one area in which they seem, Apple seems to be continuing in the tradition of Steve Jobs because Steve Jobs made a huge priority of people feeling like they could trust Apple with their information. And sure enough, it seems like they're continuing to make that a priority. And they are certainly earning my loyalty. I, I still keep, I've got a, um, an Apple iPhone SIG. You know, when you respond to an email or send an email on, on your iPhone, it says iPhone I defiant. And they are, they are being defiant against this power of an overbearing federal government that wants to, you know, force Apple to sell only certain products on, you know, the conditions that they lay out that put an automatic backdoor and all that stuff. I got another call. I'm going to go ahead and try and take care if I can. Hi, who's this? Hi, it's Harold. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. Got the cold. How are you? Very good. Um, all right. So I, I really put something up on your comments for today. It's called oh, Proton okay. Mail. Proton Mail. It's a Swiss uh, secure email solution that solves all the problems. It's free. It's not advertiser-based. And uh, I explained in the comments, but basically it's under Swiss law. So the first thing is you need a warrant, you need a court hearing and all that. Secondly, the, 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 the email servers do not handle unencrypted mail. They handle only encrypted mail. They keep the public certificates so that people can send to each other. And the mm -hmm. private certificates live only on the person's individual computer. In other words, you can't read the mail. You can make you can make secure mail, but you can't read it. And the organization can't read your mail. And even if they get a warrant, it doesn't help you. So it's there. I explained it. And people should just go get and And also, the metadata would stay. If you talk from one proton mail, proton like the inside of a, a hydrogen atom, if you talk from one proton mail account to another, the metadata mm -hmm. doesn't even go out in the clear. The metadata stays within the proton mail system. So you have a closed system, sort of like Apple, I guess. And it's free and that's you know, it's the good news of the day. Just go get yourself a proton mail account. And the other thing is you can make it ephemeral so that it lasts only for the session and then it just disappears. You know, the next time you log in it creates a new key pair, a public and private key. Wow. So you can so you can toss away the, the history of the past does not live. You know, there's no ways to use an old, even if, let's say, you manage somehow to get the key, 
if you revoke the key after every session, then there's nothing to be had from the past. Only they can only get the present, and only if they get all the details, which is impossible. Wow. So this is good news. This is great news. No, that and is. That's excellent. And the Swiss – now, you know, um, Microsoft solved their problem by handing over all their private data to the German post office – which, you know, has their servers, so they're under German law. If the U.S. ever tries to go after them, they say, well, go, go, go argue with the German government. So Microsoft <laughs> right. solved that problem. They just said, we don't have it. We don't keep it here. It's not here. And they literally don't. So this Perfect. is that step taken to a much better level because Swiss law is much better than German law and EU. Swiss do not answer to anyone outside of Switzerland. They don't answer to the EU or the United States. So unless you get in front of a judge in Switzerland and you convince the judge that there's some drugs or terrorism or something involved, you're not going to get access. And then once they do give you access, you get access to nothing. So there you go. I like it. I like it, Harold. Yeah. And, and so you're with me on the idea that, you know, the, the fact that the police are now having to go back and do it the old fashioned way and actually go to the person that they're investigating and present a warrant that this is. Perfectly legit, Look, right? If yeah. yeah, if I was a detective, I would figure ways to getting. I don't need this. This is for lazy people. I would figure if I was a policeman, I would figure out how to get to the bad guys, yeah. in such a way that I would get in. It's not that complicated, you know. It just takes a little creativity, some work. But I guess they don't teach that basic detective 101 anymore. Get a picture of a really hot girl. Send a private message to whoever this bad guy is and say, you know, hey, I saw your profile pic, right? <laughs> yeah, I saw I saw a video once of a guy had his computer stolen, but he had some little piece of software that let him track the IP address. And with a, a bunch of work, he eventually was able to track down the person who had stolen it. And the police couldn't help him. He had to give the police all the information after doing all the detective work himself. Oh, gosh. Yeah, of course. So of where, course. Are, where are the police when you need them? You know, that's how it goes. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank, thank you, Harold. Anything else? No. That, uh, the, the other good news is go and, go and read up on the late, latest political situation in South Africa. There's a little revolution going on there, and the, the, the liberals, in this case the capitalists, have won some major victories in big urban areas. I mean, it's a complete turnaround after 20 years of... A and C. So that's also more good news. And it's a model for what we can use here. We can copy their methods. It worked. You know, so just they have they they had a lot of people on the ground, but still their methods, the Ted Cruz methods actually work, which is sort of what they were doing there. But well, you just they need were, a bit. Yeah, they were they were starting to work here. It just wasn't enough this election cycle. You know, we're fighting this huge backlog of horribleness here. Yeah, Ted. Oh, I was thinking of the test. <clears throat> if we have a debate for the qualifications of our next candidates, I think they should have like three staircases going onto the stage, and whoever can climb the stairs <laughs> the fastest, you know. Then they should have a mental oh. test. You know, they should do some basic multiplications, um, just brain test, memory test, reaction time. You know, all the usual brain tests. They test should all have to go to this, this beach that I went to. I went to this beach a week and a half ago, or something like that. And it had 200 and some odd steps. And, you know, yeah, they should, they should have well, to be what, able to do those steps. Well, first you make them climb the steps. Then you make them do the math test. Yeah. You know. Yes. And, and you do I like, it like it. A, 
you, you check for mini strokes. You know, you can do that by there's certain memory tests you can do and check if they've had mini strokes or whatever. I think as a qualification for present, you give them a picture of the nuclear button and then you say, don't click. And then if they click, then you know that their sensor is not working. <laughs> yeah. That's great. That's great. Thanks. All right. Thanks I thought I'd just Harold. put some, have a happy face on today. Yeah, and that's that's what I'm trying to do as well. So, th- yeah, thank, thanks All for right. calling in and doing that, and we'll we'll talk again soon. Uh, let's go over to the blog at DontLetItGo.com, and I do have a number of positive things to either entertain you or, or hearten you, and et cetera. Um, let me finish up a little bit with the Apple, though, the, the ode to Apple, because the other reason that I included them is that Apple – allows you to customize their devices in such a way that you can always, in effect, keep your eye on the prize. And here I'm talking more on a personal level, right? So you can, on your phone, um, customize what the lock screen and the background and all that stuff looks like. And by doing that, you can be reminded of something that's of value to you every time you turn on your phone and go, to unlock it, right? So there's that. Um, on the Apple Watch, you can do a lot of the same thing, customization. Um, you know, there's little things that you can customize in terms of the features themselves, but there's, you know, in terms of the actual basic face of the watch, you can make it a photo of your choice or you can make it a randomly generated photo from an album. So if you have an album of favorites, for example, photo favorites that are on your phone, then you can make it so that your watch is just sort of randomly giving you a number of those. And these are ways that you can, you know, and people like uh, Brennan Bouchard talks about this sort of stuff in terms of, you know, kind of programming yourself to make you think of a certain thing that you wanted you to, you know, keep in mind. This is not, you know, some sort of like mindless hypnosis. You are in effect trying to figure out how to get yourself to focus on the things that you have decided are important to you multiple times of the day throughout the day. And so you can achieve this in a number of creative ways using the technology that Apple has put in your pocket. And insofar as that these things are going to be locked at certain levels, um, you know, the people can't it it's private and all that kind of stuff too if you want if you want to do that but yeah I, you know I encourage you to use those products I'm sure other companies also have good technology I just love the the beauty you know the aesthetic beauty of Apple products and the ease of use of Apple products the features are robust some of them for example like the phones they don't you know they don't take as high resolution pictures as some of the other cell phones, for example. So depending on what your priorities are, there might be another product that's better for you, but Apple works really well for me. And like I said, with their stand on privacy and challenging the feds, not just rolling over and giving the feds what they want on privacy, I really like that about them as well. So that's my little spiel on Apple. Uh, Here's a piece of good news, courtesy of Rob Abiera. Thanks for sending this on. And, you know, Rob, in sending me this little piece from the Volat Conspiracy, that's how I got over there and saw a lot of other cool things. So thanks for getting me back over there. You could do a whole podcast just on a few things that you read at the Volat Conspiracy because they've got 
you know, really interesting things. So the headline on this is should should Chevron be reconsidered? A federal judge thinks so. Now, why is this good news? You have to know what Chevron says. So Chevron says the Chevron doctrine says that courts, courts of law have to defer to executive agency interpretations of ambiguous statutory language whenever those interpretations are, quote, permissible. Permissible. Now, permissible doesn't even seem like it has to necessarily be reasonable. A, a constitutional scholar, you know, could figure out, you know, what's the difference between permissible and reasonable, whatever. The point is, is that should our courts be deferring to an executive agency in interpreting statutory language? And arguably, no, that's definitely what Jonathan Adler is arguing here. And apparently some courts are starting to say, no, this is not a good idea. It is not a good idea to allow appointed political executive branch members to be in charge of interpreting ambiguous statutory language. We need courts to have oversight on the executive in this. So let me get down. There's, um, there's a particular passage of, of the piece that I wanted to get to. Um, talks about, you know, obviously this is an issue of checks and balances. It is quite necessary for us to have a government of checks and balances because, um, you know, you cannot say, okay, well, we're going to trust Obama and just let him do whatever he wants. There's supposed to be, for instance, a Congress that tells him, no, he cannot keep borrowing in an unfettered way, right? The, there's a, a debt ceiling and everything else. They're supposed to authorize a spending bill. Um, you know, you don't want the judiciary to just be able to make law of whole, out of whole cloth. You want, for example, um, you know, you want, for example, to, for the legislatures to be able to, maybe with some trouble, amend the Constitution or pass laws that directly contradict a particular judicial holding, right? Each of the branches of government is supposed to perform a function of checks and balances on the other. And um, I think it is a really good sign if you have even one court, you know, one appellate court that is prominent challenging this doctrine. Um, now, what happens if, if uh, Chevron, this doctrine that, you know, the executive could interpret it, what if it fails? Uh, this judge, his, his name is Gorsuch, Gorsuch, if I'm pronouncing it correctly. Uh, he says, Congress could and would continue to pass statutes for executive agencies to enforce. And he says, just as surely agencies could and would continue to offer guidance on how they intend to enforce those statutes. The only difference would be that courts would then fulfill their duty to exercise their independent judgment about what the law is. He says, of course, could, uh, courts could and would consult agency views and apply the agency's interpretation when it accords with the best reading of the statute. But de novo judicial review of the law's meaning would limit the ability of an agency to alter and amend existing law. It would avoid the due process and equal protection problems of the kind that have been documented in the decisions. So it would keep, in effect, 
federal agency power, you know, from like running away with itself. And I think this is nothing but good news. So thanks, Rob, for sending that on. Another piece of good news, courtesy of my Facebook friend, David Cohen. It's from Intellectual Takeout headline, University of Chicago pushes back on trigger warnings and safe spaces. It says that letters sent to the incoming class of 2020 make it clear that the University of Chicago isn't a fan of trigger warnings or safe spaces. It says academics around the country are embracing the relatively new trend of using trigger warnings to shield students from ideas that might be discomforting or trauma-inducing. They touch on, quote, racism, classism, sexism, heterosexism, cissexism, Cissexism, I can't even pronounce that word, cissexism, okay, there we go, ableism, and other issues of privilege and oppression, but now University of Chicago is saying, don't expect this, don't expect safe spaces, etc., and I would say bravo to them. Um, they say they do not support so-called trigger warnings. They do not uh, offer, quote, safe spaces that allow students, quote, to retreat from ideas and perspectives at odds with their own. And this is what they say. They say, welcome and congratulations on your acceptance to the college at the University of Chicago. Earning a place in our community of scholars is no small achievement, and we are delighted that you selected Chicago to continue your intellectual journey. Once here, you will discover that one of University of Chicago's defining characteristics is our commitment to freedom of inquiry and expression. Members of our community are encouraged to speak, write, listen, challenge, and learn without fear of censorship. Civility and mutual respect are all vital, or excuse me, are vital to all of us. And freedom of expression does not mean the freedom to harass or threaten others, right? I like that distinction. It's like you can't threaten, but you can offend. You will find that we expect members of our community to be engaged in rigorous debate, discussion, and even disagreement. At times, this may challenge you and even cause, excuse me, discomfort. And then they say the coup de grace here. Um, commitment to academic freedom means that we do not support so-called trigger warnings. We do not cancel invited speakers because their topics might prove controversial. And we do not condone the creation of intellectual, quote, safe spaces where individuals can retreat from ideas and perspectives at odds with their own. And I say bravo. The other person that I say bravo to is a single professor, Ilya Soman, who is published over at the Volokh Conspiracy blog. He says, a warning against trigger warnings, and he cites this University of Chicago thing. And he says that one of the law school courses he teaches at George Mason is constitutional law, con law too. And this is what he says. He gives a warning against trigger warnings in his class. And this is how it goes. Quote from Soman. He says, I don't believe in trigger warnings, but if I did, I would have to include one for virtually every day of this course. We are going to cover subjects like slavery, segregation, sexism, suicide, the death penalty and abortion. He says, um, he says, there's no way to teach this course without discussing these issues, and there is no good way to cover them without also considering a wide range of views about these subjects and their relationship to the Constitution. And he says, students seem to get the point, et cetera. He's never had any real trouble. And I think that, yeah, if you have reasonable students, you're not going to have any real trouble. Um, 
He says sometimes the surveys show that they have views left of him, but he doesn't have any real trouble. So bravo to him for doing that. And in fact, I should do something like that in my own seminars. And yeah, I think I, I, I probably will. My, my semester just started here. A uh, couple more things. We only have a couple minutes left, so just a few fun little things. There's the article about Elon Musk requesting to meet Amber Heard via email. And um, the Hollywood Reporter is saying, look, he requested to meet with her. Why? Because he heard this unusual thing about her, that she was both a fan of, of, a fan of both George Orwell and Ayn Rand, and then they have dot, 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 most unusual. End quote. So it's a quote from Elon Musk, and he says, George, she's a fan of George Orwell and Ayn Rand, dot, 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 most unusual. And Stewart speculates, and I agree, that there must be some more meat in there, because it's not that unusual for people to be fans of both Orwell and Rand. I am one of those. Many of us are. Uh, another thing to look at, a Wright-inspired, Frank Lloyd Wright-inspired tiny home resurfacing in an Indiana town. Go to the blog, don'tletitgo.com, and check out this cool little house. And it's unbelievable. Six people lived in this house, um, excuse me, for 11 years, and you'll never even believe that because it's like 500 square feet. Paisley Park is going to be open to public tours. You might be pro or con about that, but if you're interested in seeing how Prince lived, you might get a taste there. And then um, finally, there's a song kind of on the theme of keep your eye on the prize it's called Wrong for the Right Reasons, and it was shared by the Jezebels on their Facebook page. And, I, you know, even though I'm not typically a country music fan, um, this doesn't sound like super country, and you might check it out and you might enjoy it. So, everyone, I am out of time. Otherwise, I would play you that song. We'll have to talk here at the same time next week, but I thank you for joining in. I thank people who have called in. In the chat room, thank you for participating there as well. And I look forward to talking to you next week. Again, go to the blog if you want to continue the conversation. Go to don'tletitgo.com. Take care.